0: Our sermon this morning is from Luke chapter 22, verses 54 to 62. Turn to Luke 22 in your Bibles if you have them. If you are using a pew Bible, you can find Luke chapter 22 on page 829. So turn there in your Bibles, and let's take a few minutes to consider Peter's denial of Jesus. Peter's threefold denial of Jesus as his his Lord and, and Savior. Peter's had quite a night... Uh, up until up until now, we've been kind of looking at it over the last few weeks. Um, earlier in chapter twenty-two, verses seven and following, Peter, uh, Jesus sends Peter to go, you know, find a room where where Jesus and his twelve disciples can celebrate the Passover. In verses fourteen and following, they're celebrating the the Last Supper with Jesus, the institution of the Lord's Supper. Jesus makes it very clear that Judas is going to betray him, uh, and he makes it very clear that Peter is going to deny him. And Peter emphatically objects, right? Uh, He says, I'm ready to go both to prison and to death, but I will never uh, deny you. Peter's got an awful lot of swagger. He's got an awful lot of confidence, um, especially when you consider that he is disagreeing with Jesus, who is himself, the sovereign Lord who knows all things controls everything, past, present, and and future. So it's the Last Supper in uh, in verses twenty or in verses thirty nine and following. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, at this point, it's just Jesus and eleven of his twelve disciples because Judas is broken off. And so Jesus leaves eight of the eleven disciples in one place, and he takes three of them—Peter, James, and John. They go to another place to pray together. <clears throat> Jesus says, I want you to stay here and pray. I'm going to go over there and pray. Jesus comes back and finds Peter asleep. Not once, uh, not twice, but three times. Peter falls asleep while he's trying to stay awake and pray when Jesus is counting on him. And Then after all that, Judas shows back up, kind of reconnects with the group that he had uh, kind of left uh, earlier that evening. He's got a contingent of guards and political leaders. They're all looking to uh, arrest him. And uh, Peter, at this point, seems to be under the impression that Jesus needs him to defend him because he starts, takes his sword out and starts swinging it around. Uh, he actually uh, swings it at the head of Malchus, the uh, servant of Caiaphas, the high priest. Doesn't kill him, <clears throat> but he does cut his ear off. Uh, so he was off, you know, probably an inch or two away from a, from a kill stroke. Um, and so Jesus rebukes Peter, heals, uh, Malchus's ear. And that's really been Peter's night up until, up until where we're going to pick up this morning. It's been a crazy night, lots of things going on, right? The dinner with some heavy and unpleasant conversation, surge of adrenaline, attempted murder, right? That's been Peter's night up until, up until right now. And so we're going to pick up in verse 54 and read through verse 62, and then I'm going to pray and we're going to consider it together. It says, then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire and in the middle of the courtyard, they sat down together. Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man was also with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Let's pray together. (coughs) Lord Jesus, we pray for our time in your word this morning. We invite you here into this room with us. We, we ask you, Lord, I ask you to speak through me to overcome my weakness and deficiencies. Lord, we ask you to speak to our hearts. We ask you to convict us and assure us and help us. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Alright, so we'll begin in verse 54 and work our way through. They seized him, that's Jesus, they seized him and led him away, bringing him to the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. Jesus is taken by this hostile crowd, this mob, this uh, gang, Uh, soldiers, religious leaders, they've got torches and lanterns, they've got swords and clubs, they take him by force to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. And they begin these trial proceedings in the middle of the night. And if you're thinking that's weird, like that doesn't sound like doesn't sound like due process, right? It sounds like why not wait until the morning? Why not wait until this can be done in the public eye? It sounds like they're being sneaky or they're trying to rush something through. It's exactly right. The religious leaders know all too well that the people love Jesus, that he has a ton of support with the people, <coughs> they love his teachings, they love his his miracles. They come out in droves to see him. And so the religious leaders are thinking, we need to arrest Jesus. We need to get right to, we need to arrest him when the sun goes down. And we need to get right to work at, at, you know, trying him and convicting him as quickly as we, as we can, right? We don't want to give his disciples uh, any time or opportunity to summon any courage that they might need to oppose us. We don't need uh, to give any potential would-be objectors a chance to come forward. This is the, I mean, back in verse 53, uh, it's what Jesus referred to as the power of darkness, right? This is your hour. This is the power of of darkness. And Peter is following at a distance, which is key, right? That's an interesting detail. Peter wasn't following closely. Peter was following at a distance, right? He kind of goes from being excessively combative, right? Swinging his sword all over the place without authorization to being excessively passive, right? Letting them take, take Jesus, um, not identifying as someone who follows Jesus, hiding in the shadows, keeping Jesus at arm's length, trying to see which way the political winds would shift, and making sure that he doesn't do anything that might prove too dangerous, In verse 55, they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and they sat down together and Peter sat among them. John gives us a little bit of additional uh, insight into some of the details. John's accounting is always kind of funny when you think about uh, him describing himself versus versus Peter. He says that they get to the, the home of Caiaphas. And the courtyard is kind of guarded. There's like a doorman, right? Like a VIP, the velvet rope. And so John comes up and he says, Caiaphas and I are friends. I know him. He knows me. And they say, sure, John, you come right on in. And so they let John pass the velvet rope. Peter's stuck outside. And then John goes up to the servant girl and he says, hey, I know Peter. Peter's with me. Let him inside. And so they let Peter inside. And then they all kind of come in to the courtyard of the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. They've got a fire there because it's the middle of the night and it's cold. And so they are all gathering around the fire and it's warm. But when you get close to the fire, it's also light. And so as soon as Peter sits down in the light of the fire in the courtyard, the servant girl, verse 56, sees him. and says, this man was with him. This man was with Jesus. The word servant girl here in verse 56 is uh, specifically referring to a, a young, it's the, the word is uh, padiske, it's a, it's a, it refers to a young girl, right? The root word of this word for servant girl is child. So we're not talking about, we're talking about a young girl, probably probably not in high school yet, probably middle school, maybe even elementary school, a young, small girl. And so so the, the the contrast is being drawn here from the angry mob that came and took Jesus and seized him and led him away, which is a bunch of grown men <coughs> with torches, lanterns, clubs, swords, weapons. They're going to kill anyone that stands in their way and tries to keep them from doing what they came to do, which was arrest Jesus. And then a, a small, young child, fem- like if you are a female, <coughs> In the first century, you were powerless. If you were a young female, you were even more powerless. And if you were a young female servant, you were pretty much as powerless as you could be. And yet Peter is terrified. Right? A few minutes ago in the garden, it was dark. It was scary. There were soldiers and he's ready to stand up then. But now, you know, 20 minutes later, whenever it is, Right, Peter is terrified, sitting next to a small child, a small female servant child. She says, you were one of them. And he says, woman, I do not know him. So that's interesting, right? A uh, servant girl, which is kind of uh, an accurate depiction of what this person was, is a young child. And, and Peter calls her woman, because presumably he is... So nervous or so worried or so scared in this situation that he see, you know, he sees this young servant girl as a threat, right? He sees her as, as much of a threat to him as any full grown adult would be, right? Because she, uh, you know, is, is she, like, she kind of represents the possibility of Peter being outed, of Peter, you know, no longer being anonymous. Peter no longer kind of floating under the, the radar in this crowd. So she says you were with him. Peter says, "Woman, I do not know him." <clears throat> Verse 58, a little bit later, someone else saw him and they said, "You also are one of them." And Peter says, "Man, I am not." Right? So the the first the servant girl says, "You were with him," right? "You were with Jesus." The second person says, "You are one of them. You are one of the followers of Jesus." And you respond, "Right, I, you were with him. I do not know him. You are one of them, man. I am not." <clears throat> we get some more insight in the Gospel of Matthew. We kind of see that uh, each progressive denial from from Peter. Is more emphatic. It's more urgent. It's more. There's more concern and fear and anger in in his voice. It says, you know, for the second denial, it says that Peter denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. So I swear. I swear. You know. I give you an oath. I swear to you that I do not know him. He's escalating more and more. Verse fifty nine. After an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. So, now we're seeing that this whole thing is not, you know, it's not happening one after the other after the other. It's kind of stretching, stretching out over time, right? There's the first denial, and then it says a little bit later, there's a second denial. And now it says after about an hour, there is a third accusation. And so Peter is, you know, it's not like he has a, a momentary lapse of judgment that he immediately, um, you know, regrets or that he corrects right away. This is a repeated, <clears throat> a repeated, persistent pattern. Spread out, you know, over the course of hours, Peter is kind of continuing to receive, you know, aren't you one of them? No, I'm not. Aren't you with him? No, I am, am not. A few. You know, different sports handle their playoffs different ways. Some of them have, you know, best of five, best of seven. And the whole point of it is to, like, remove any doubt that the better team won. Right? If you, if you have a a best of seven series and the first team to win four games, some of which are home games, some of which are away games, right, and make sure that both teams... Get to see every pitcher the other team has to to bring up to them. Both teams get to kind of see all of the strategies play out of the other teams. And you're kind of confident at the end of a seven-game series that the better team actually won. Some sports are decided with one single game, right? College basketball classic example, March Madness. Right, and that's why whenever March Madness happens, it's always, they call it, it's called March Madness. It's chaos, right? You'll see a four seed lose to a 13 seed or a one seed lose to a 16 seed because, I mean, on any given night, anything could happen, right? You can watch a game during March Madness and think, I'm pretty sure if I saw those two teams play each other a hundred times, that other team would win 99 out of a hundred times. They're that much better. They're that much more talented. They have that much better. <clears throat> they're that much more prepared. But just on this night, for whatever reason, that team lost and the other team won. Right? Peter didn't deny Jesus like on a one time <clears throat> anomaly, kind of a random event. Peter denied Jesus three times over the course of hours. It was persistent, it was over and over, it was on purpose. He had time to think about his first denial for a long time before the second. He had time to anticipate the second and the third for a long time before they happen, And he responds the same exact way because it's what's coming out of, his, out of his heart. Verse 60, Peter says, man, I do not know what you are talking about. Again, Matthew and Mark. Uh, give us more insight into this third denial to see that there's even more kind of progression, like he, he's, he's escalating even more and more. So the, the second denial, it says that he, um, you know, uh, swore with an oath, I do not know the man. And then this third denial, it says that he invoked a curse on himself and swore an oath saying, I do not know the man. So now <clears throat> Peter has escalated to, you know, it's almost as if he's saying, you know, uh, I'll, I'll be damned if I've ever met this man in my in my entire life. If if I if I am li- I don't know Jesus, I've never met him, and if I am lying then God can send me to hell right now. That's how serious I am. That's how like uh, how confident I am in my oath that I'm swearing to you that I don't know Jesus. This is the man who started the chapter saying Jesus, I'll never leave you. I'll go to prison. I'll die for you. I'm so loyal that the only way that anyone could ever, like, pry me away from your side is if I'm dead and they're taking my body away from you. And now he's saying, I've never met him. I swear on my life. I swear on my soul. I swear on my eternity. I've never met Jesus. He is, He's fallen from the... <clears throat> the highest possible heights of confidence to the lowest possible depths of failure. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed and the Lord turned and looked at him. Rooster crows. Peter can't even get the words out of his mouth. And Jesus looks at him. He doesn't even have to say a word. He doesn't even have to make a gesture. He doesn't have to do anything physically or verbally to point out to Peter that he was wrong and Jesus was right. He just turns and, and, and looks at him. <clears throat> uh, Dan Marino used to say that one of the big parts of his job is to throw the football, right? He's a quarterback in the NFL. Big part of my job is to throw the football. But an even bigger part of his job than throwing the football is to, you know, uh, Put people on his team in a position to perform well so that they can win games. And he said a big part of his job as a quarterback is to point out people's mistakes, coach them up, help them to play better for the rest of the, the game. And so part of that as a quarterback is to, is to kind of cultivate emotional intelligence, EQ. Right, every player he has to know how every player on his team, how they think, and what kind of coaching, what kind of encouragement they need to play at their best. And so some guys they make a mistake and he has to grab their face mask and shake you know, smack their helmet and yell at them and say, you know, do better, right? And embarrass like he has to get them mad, get them angry at him and then turn them around and send them out to the line of scrimmage and like take your anger out on the other team. Some guys, he, you know, has to run over to where they are and yell at, you know, hey, you know, we've been working on this all week. You know, I don't want to hear your excuses. Get your head in the game. Some guys, if he acts like that, if he coaches them like that, if he kind of encourages them like that in the, the course of a game, they shut down. You might as well send them to the sideline and bring in a backup because they will, they will be playing worse for the rest of the game because of that kind of, like, you know, intense coaching and, and yelling. <clears throat> So he says, some guys, they miss a block, they run a route wrong, something like that. And all he has to do is just look at them. And he would just like make eye contact with them. And kind of in this one glance, in one second, right, he's communicating to them, you made a mistake, that cost us. They're recognizing in that eye contact, yes, I made a mistake. And he knows that they won't make another mistake the rest of the afternoon. That's kind of what Jesus Jesus looks at Peter for just a moment. And in that one moment, everything comes rushing back to Peter, right? Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. <clears throat> it's that kind of cinematic moment where Peter remembers everything that's been happening all of, the, all of the shame and all of the guilt from, from things having transpired exactly as Jesus said they would, instead of how Peter insisted that they would, is all kind of rushing in. He's embarrassed. He's scared. He is filled with, with um, you know, just fear. He's filled with shame and regret. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Peter's convicted that he's failed. He's convicted that he had denied Christ just like he swore that he never would. And he runs out and he, and he begins to cry and begins to just kind of uh, feel shame and feel intense regret. <clears throat> now, the story of Peter, this passage, I want us to consider a few points of application from it. I want us to consider how this passage, how the, the example or the counterexample, as, case, as the case may be, might be relevant for our lives as believers, uh, as believers today. I want to I point out three things that we can take away from this story that are going to inform how we can be more godly and be more Christ-like in our lives today. First is to <clears throat> beware of the sin of overconfidence. Beware of the sin of overconfidence. If you had to pick one word to describe Peter up until this point, that would probably be it, right? Confident, you know, in excess, overconfidence, right? Peter had been uh, called by Jesus into discipleship. He's given a new name. His name was Simon. And and Jesus says to him, I'm not going to call you Simon anymore. I'm going to call you Peter. Peter means rock. means solid and stable, right? Steadfast right? Peter, you are a rock. I'm going to call you a rock. That seems to go to Peter's head a little bit. Seems to walk with a swagger, right? Jesus told me I'm solid. Jesus told me that I'm stable. I am solid. I am stable. I have nothing that I need to to worry about. Jesus is always the one kind of leading the disciples along. He's always right there where the action is happening. He's the first one to speak up when a question is posed. At the transfiguration, there's Peter, right? Um, at the, the In the garden of Gethsemane, there's, there's Peter. They're all in a boat. Jesus is walking on the water. Peter's the one who says, command me to come to you. I'm going to jump out of this boat and walk to you. Peter's quick to speak. <clears throat> He's always got something to say. He's always the one to charge into the situation. Everyone else is hanging back, processing, thinking, I don't want to act too quick, let's take a beat here. Peter's jumping right in, and he's always on his toes, always ready to kind of head right in. He's exceedingly confident. He's overly confident. Overconfidence is not something that the world seems to be that concerned about. I could be wrong, right? Maybe more people in the world are concerned about overconfidence than I am, but I I don't seem to it doesn't seem to be the the you know cultural temperature that I take when I when I kind of look around. I went on Amazon this week, looked at some of their best selling books, not one about the sin of overconfidence. Lots of books about the dangers of low self-esteem. Lots, lots of books about the crisis of not having enough confidence, but none about the sin of overconfidence. Titles like Loving Yourself, Listening to Your Inner Voice, Following Your Dreams, Casting Off the Shackles of What the World Expects of You, Being Free to Be Who You Really Are, Self-Respect, Self-Compassion, Self-Determination, Self-Therapy, Self-Healing, Self-Care, Self-Love. Right, A lot of that. Our culture seems to be operating under the impression that the self is unimpeachably good and we have no reason to question it no reason to doubt it no reason to be concerned about it the worst thing you can do is not listen to yourself right question yourself because of what someone else told you to do your parents your friends traditions power structures the best thing that you can do is listen to yourself listen to the the small voice your authentic self, right? Be yourself, empower yourself. We're all about self-confidence and we're not nearly as concerned as maybe we should be about the sin of overconfidence. But God is. Right? God uh, is totally in favor of, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, overstate the case. God is totally in favor of self-love. He's in favor of self-care. God is in favor of people being psychologically healthy. When you read the Bible, and really when you look at the life of Peter, you're immediately confronted with the sin of overconfidence. And the reason why the sin of overconfidence is so dangerous, the reason why the, the sin of overconfidence should be of such great concern to us, is because overconfidence makes you vulnerable to sin serious sin life altering sin eternity affecting sin sin that could ruin your life sin that could shipwreck your faith overconfidence makes you vulnerable right? imagine that you're imagine that you're in the middle of a live war zone there's bullets flying over your head you got two guys. One guy is told, "This is dangerous. where like wear your armor or whatever. right? Wear, wear this protective gear. Right? There's enemies firing at us, so stay down, hunker down here behind this safe barricade. Wear your protective gear. Don't expose yourself in a way that could get you killed." And another guy is told, "Man, you got this, right? Like self-esteem, brother. Like, dude, you." You are the man, right? You you are invincible. No one can hurt you. I don't even think there are any enemies over there. If they do, I don't even think they have weapons. And if they do, I don't even... They're loaded with blanks. And they are a bad aim anyway. They, they can't hit you, so feel free to move about. Explore the space, right? You know, without any concern at all. So the first guy stays tucked in. Safe, Even though bullets are flying, the second guy stands up tall without any armor and is immediately shot and killed. Right? The, the overconfidence makes us vulnerable in ways that can have real and profound and, and terrible effects on our, on our life. Again, the, the issue of low self esteem, the issue of not thinking highly enough of oneself <clears throat> is real right? It, it, you know, it can result in people allowing themselves to be taken advantage of or exploited. It can result in despair or depression or suicide. So, so you know, low self-esteem and not thinking highly enough of yourself is, is real and it's an issue that we should be aware of. But having too high a view of yourself, the danger of overconfidence is just as real. I have nothing to learn. I have nothing to fear. I don't need to listen to anyone else. I don't need anyone else to speak into my life. I am not vulnerable to sin. They are. Those people are. They're not as good as me. They're not as great as me. They're not as spiritual as I am. All throughout the Gospels, we see Peter saying things like, Matthew 26, Far be it from me, Lord, that you would ever suffer and be killed. Matthew 19, I have left everything to follow you. Surely, I will have a great inheritance in eternity. Mark 14, even if everyone else falls away, I will never fall away. Matthew 26, even if I must die with you, I will never deny you. John 18, I will follow you anywhere. I will lay down my life for you. Peter has no category for the thought that he might ever deny Jesus. He doesn't think that he would ever be vulnerable, that he would ever fall prey to the sin of denying Jesus. And that's exactly when he is most vulnerable to the sin of denying Jesus, when he's most confident. The moment you start to think, I would never covet, right? I'm, I'm perfectly content with what I have. I don't need to worry about, about coveting what other people have is the moment that, you know, someone gets a promotion that you thought was yours. It's the moment that your neighbor drives a new car home and you thought should have been yours or the moment that your friend goes on a vacation that you've wanted to go on for years. I would never lie, right? I'm, I'm, so spiritual and so righteous that I don't struggle with uh, the sin of lying and deceiving others. That's the moment when you have an opportunity to tell a seemingly small, insignificant, untruth that would dramatically make your life easier or better. I would never steal anything, right? Theft is not an issue for me. It's not something I have to worry about. It's the exact moment that you stumble across an opportunity to take something from... You know, your employer, time, you know, resources, whatever it is. I don't need an accountability partner. I don't need to be a member of a local church, right? The Christian life is easy. I don't need to worry about it. I don't need to put forth any effort to walk with Jesus because I've got this. First Corinthians 10 says, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. One of the most dangerous ways to make yourself vulnerable to destructive sin in your life is by being overconfident and thinking that you are not susceptible to sin. That you have nothing to worry about. So the first point of application is beware of the sin of overconfidence. The second one is that sin starts small and it grows Ever so subtly. Sin starts small and it grows subtly. <clears throat> the first uh, first verse of the passage we're looking at today, it specifically mentions that Peter was following Jesus at a distance. Right? Peter's, Peter's denial <clears throat> of Jesus didn't uh, happen right away. It started small and then it grew. It started by Peter... Uh, following Jesus, but not following him closely, but following him at a a distance, seemingly out of fear. And it grew from there, right? I'm sure at the time, Peter was thinking, all right, like, Jesus just rebuked me for cutting this guy's ear off. And so I'm just going to, I'm like, I'm going to stand back. I'm going to take it easy. I'm going to let things play. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be overly uh, combative. I'm going to just kind of uh, relax and just kind of take it easy for, for a minute. But then I'm sure that he's also wrestling with fear in his heart that says, right, if I am too close, if I identify too readily, too explicitly, too vocally with Jesus, then I'm going to get the same faith that Jesus is, is getting. And so there's this slow, so he's slow, like he lets fear creep into his heart slowly and subtly and in a way that frankly seems kind of innocuous, right? We're still following Jesus, just following him at a distance. Look at how sin works in the the first few chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and following. The first sin is Adam and Eve eat a piece of fruit. Seems pretty innocuous, right? Fruit. We want our kids to eat fruit. It's not like they ate a cookie. They ate a piece of fruit. But then it grows from there into lying about it and covering it up. A generation later, now it's grown, grown to murder, to fratricide, right? Cain murders Abel. A few generations later, it's grown. Cain's descendant, Lamech, is a murderer like his father Cain, but he's proud of it and he's bragging about it. He's an adulterer, he's an abuser, he's threatening his wives with physical violence. Sin starts small, but then, like, grows, it gets bigger and bigger, and it grows, and it gets more leverage over you. It becomes harder, it's more difficult to resist, right? The, the easiest it ever is to resist sin is right at the beginning. And the more you give way into it, the more leverage it has over you, and the more difficult it is to fight it. <clears throat> I've, I've shared this illustration before, but it's really apt. There's a woman named Temple Grandin. She's a scientist, she's a behavioral, she's a a scientist and an animal behaviorist. And she's an advocate for uh, humane treatment of livestock during the meat packing process. They made a movie about her. You can go online and watch it. But Temple Grandin, her deal was, she kind of came into the, she saw all these ranchers and all these cattle farmers and watched how they were herding cattle and kind of, you know, Taking them through the slaughtering process, the meat packing process, and it was, um, they were doing it by force, right? They were beating them, shocking them, scaring them, freaking them out. The cattle were like, you know, trying to not go any further and they were pushing them and fighting them. And her idea was, um, you know, why don't we, why don't we, why can't we do this better, right? All the, all the cattle farmers are thinking, what does it matter? We're going to kill them in just a few moments, so just let's force them through, get this done, I gotta get home for lunch. Temple Grandin was like, Look, we can reimagine this process in a way that is both more humane for the animals and more efficient for us, the, the ranchers and the, the you know meat packing industry. And so she came up with this way where, you know, instead of beating the animals and forcing them through and shocking them, you would create a process that keeps them calm and comfortable. And you kind of just slowly, gently shepherd them through this process. She removed all of the the right angles and the sharp angles out of the process because she found out that that would freak the the cows out. Any sort of like, uh, you know, bright lights or any reflective, you know, uh, anything that was reflective, she would notice that that would kind of freak them out. So she made this entire process that they would just walk through willingly. And it was like very slow and very, there was soothing music playing. And the whole thing was like, it would literally lull these cows as they were walking into the slaughterhouse. It would lull them to sleep. And they would kind of, they would basically be in a trance by the time they were done. The closer they get to the slaughterhouse, the more in a trance they are. And then slowly and gently a harness would come under their legs and slowly relieve one pound of pressure, and then 10, and then 20. And then before you knew it, their legs are off the ground. They didn't even realize it. They didn't even feel the harness pick them up. And they're hanging there, and their feet are hanging down, and they're basically asleep. And then a ballpoint hammer smacks them in the head, and they're just instantly dead. And that was like the process that she envisioned. She said, this is better. It's, there's no pain. There's no fear. There's no fighting with these animals. It's, it's better for us. It's better for them. And it was. She revolutionized the the industry. But it's a really interesting illustration to think about how sin slowly and and almost imperceptibly begins to work in in our lives. Right? It's just it's a slow process that we're kind of slowly walked into. It seems harmless. It seems like there's no danger involved. It's comfortable. It's fine. And then all of a sudden you fall prey to destructive sin and you look back and you realize in hindsight how far you have drifted. No one in a great marriage wakes up on a given morning and says, I'm going to go commit adultery today. It's a series, it's hundreds, it's thousands of little tiny compromises that take place one after another, one on top of the other over days, weeks, months, years that culminate in life-altering, eternity-affecting sin. Right? No one, no one walking with God spiritually healthy just says one day, I'm going to punt the faith and stop being a Christian. I'm going to walk away from the church forever. It starts by saying, you know, I'm going to relax on the spiritual disciplines a little bit. I've been doing it pretty, pretty rigorously for a while. I think I'm just going to coast for a minute. You know, maybe I'll take the week off of church. I've been busy, obligations at work, kids, sports. I was up late. You know, maybe I'll take another week off and then another. And then before you know it, a few months have gone by. You haven't been to church. You haven't even contemplated spiritual things at all. At some point you stop and think, actually it would be harder to re-engage and go back to church now that I've been gone for so long than it would be just to disengage entirely, I'll just do my own thing. A year or two later you don't even identify as a Christian at all anymore and you've effectively fallen away from the faith. I know people who have done that, that, that has been the exact trajectory that they have walked in their life. And they didn't get up one morning when they were walking with God and say, I want to fall away from the faith. It just happened as a consequence of a lot of little tiny compromises over time. Peter starts by something as small and harmless and innocuous as following Jesus but doing it at a distance. And before you know it, he's denying Christ multiple times, repeatedly, emphatically. As you look at your life right now, take great care. Exercise great caution and great concern to repent of sin in your life right now. To be on guard against sin in your life right now. Because those sins, if left unchecked, if left unattended, Will give way to bigger, more dangerous, more serious, more life altering sins down the road. How you fight against the sins that are in front of you right now is going to determine whether or not you fall prey to significant life altering sins over time. We must not deceive ourselves into thinking that we'll suddenly, magically become more godly when the stakes are higher. If we're not working at godliness and cultivating it right now. Stress and crisis reveal who we are. Not who we hoped that we would be, but never actually bothered to become. So one, beware of the sin of overconfidence. Two, sin starts small and it grows subtly. And then three, when you sin... Take your sin to Jesus. When you fail, take your failures to Jesus. <clears throat> Consider these two pictures. Let's think about the diverging paths of Je- of Peter and Judas. Judas was a disciple of Jesus. Judas was called by Jesus. Judas followed Jesus faithfully for 3 years. Judas Loved money more than he loved Jesus. Judas betrayed Jesus for money. Judas sells Jesus out to his enemies. And then Matthew 27 says that Judas was seized with remorse. He felt really bad about it. Peter was a disciple of Jesus. Peter was called by Jesus. Peter followed Jesus faithfully for three years. Peter feared rejection and persecution from this servant girl. More than he loved Jesus. Peter denies Jesus in front of them. And then Peter goes out and weeps bitterly. He feels really bad about it. Their stories are almost identical up until that point. So why is Peter the most prominent disciple, the leader in the early church? Why do we name our kids after him today? Well, Judas as best as we can discern from reading the Bible, appears to have fallen away from the faith for good. And if that is in fact what happened, then Judas is in hell while Peter is in heaven. Both had a similar failure, betraying Jesus, denying Jesus. Both had a similar motive, love of money, fear of man. Both had similar reactions, remorse and guilt, weeping bitterly. So why do they turn out so differently? When Judas sinned, he felt remorse, and then he ran away from Jesus. Goes back to the religious leaders, tries to give him their money back. They laugh at him, blow him off. They say, we're not going to help you alleviate your guilty conscience. It's your burden, you carry it. And he kills himself. He sinned, he felt bad, and then he ran further away from Jesus, so much so that he didn't want to live anymore. What does Peter do? Peter sins, he feels bad, he runs away, he weeps bitterly. And then what does he do? Next time we see Peter, in Mark 16, Luke 24, the women who discover Jesus' empty tomb go to the disciples to tell them, and there's Peter. He's with them. He was distraught, he was devastated, he was uh, you know stricken with guilt and fear, and he ran toward the people of God instead of away from them in John twenty Peter after the women come and tell him, "Hey, uh, you know Jesus is alive." Peter runs toward the risen Christ, he runs toward the empty tomb to see what has happened in john twenty one Peter and all the disciples are hanging out fishing, and the risen Christ. <clears throat> appears on the shore there's a miraculous catch of fish and of all the 11 uh, all the 11 disciples in the boat 10 of them say let's go to the shore and see jesus one of them jumps out of the boat and swims to jesus as fast as he can right he can't he can't get to jesus fast enough Peter commits sin that is significant and egregious and life-altering. And yet, over and over and over, after he does, he's running toward Jesus. He's running toward the people of God, not away from them. And when Peter arrives on the shore and he's interacting with Jesus, Jesus asks him, not once, not twice, but three times, Peter, do you love me? And Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Three statements of denial in the courtyard. Three affirmations of reinstatement here on the on the shore. Jesus is welcoming Peter back. I forgive you. I love you. I never stopped loving you. Your sin was terrible. It, it was not insignificant. It cannot be overlooked. But my grace is greater than your sin. As bad as your sin was, denying me, my grace is sufficient to reconcile you back into a right relationship with me. And from that point forward, all through the book of Acts, Peter is bold and mighty, preaching sermons, going to prison. According to the early church fathers, he died being crucified just like Jesus, except he was crucified upside down because he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified the way that my Lord and Savior was. So crucify me upside down. Peter persevered in the faith all the way to the end because when he sinned, he ran to Jesus. He ran to the people of God and Jesus forgave him. Friends, when you fall into sin, and you will, when you fall into sin, be like Peter and not like Judas. Run toward the people of God and not away from them. Run toward Jesus instead of away from him. Run to your Savior. Judas felt bad. He ran away and he killed himself. Peter felt bad and he ran to Jesus, confessed his sin, repented of it. Jesus forgave him. Jesus reinstated him. Jesus commissioned him to a powerful ministry from that point forward. And he does the same with us. Jesus did not die on the cross so that you would never sin. He didn't die on the cross so that on the off chance that you do sin, that you would run away, that you would beat yourself up over it, right? So that he could withhold forgiveness from you. Jesus died on the cross so that when you sin, you can run to him You can come to him, you can receive forgiveness freely from him, because the punishment that you deserve was laid on him. It was exhausted on him. The wrath of God was satisfied on him. And now you can be forgiven and treated as if you lived the perfect life of Christ. Jesus died on the cross so that sinners and sufferers can be welcomed back into the glorious presence of Christ, even though they don't deserve it. So when you sin, run to Jesus, trust in Him, lean on the people of God, be a part of the church, be a member of the church, receive the grace of Christ, walk in light of it, and live your Christian life remembering the grace of God, enjoying it, and celebrating it. Which, incidentally, is exactly what we do when we take the Lord's Supper. We remember that, that Jesus, is, Jesus gave his life for us, his body was broken, his blood was shed. We remember that Jesus extends grace to sinners if they run to him and we eat, and we drink, and we remember, and we celebrate together as a family. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and he broke it. And when he had given thanks, he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're a believer, if you've trusted in Christ, we invite you to the table to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. During the last song, come forward, take the elements. Take a moment, reflect, repent of your sin, receive the grace of Christ, enjoy it, remember it, celebrate it. If you're not a Christian, we would ask you not to take communion 1 Corinthians 11 actually says that if you eat or drink uh, in an unworthy manner, then you're eating and drinking judgment on yourself. It's a very serious matter. So instead of taking communion, we would invite you to take Christ. To trust in Him. To hold fast to Him. And receive the grace that He is offering freely to you. And then let us know so that you can take communion with us next time. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who is gracious. Your grace is big and deep and wide. Jesus, we thank you for your death on the cross in our place to purchase our salvation. Lord, we pray that you would protect us from the sin of overconfidence, of thinking too highly of ourselves and becoming vulnerable to sin. We pray that you would help us to repent and fight against sin. And Lord, when we do sin, we pray that you would help us to run to you and trust in you and receive the grace that you freely offer to us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.